thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Plus, as some continue to speculate that COVID came from a lab, we're looking at the scientific research that's being done on dangerous diseases, whether this work is safe and how it's regulated. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Now, up first this week, unvaccinated pregnant women catching COVID and becoming severely unwell is a significant cause for alarm in hospitals across the UK at the moment. The guidance is that, just as for flu, pregnant women should be vaccinated against COVID as a priority. But many have not yet taken up the offer and are now accounting for up to a fifth of the most severely ill cases being managed in some intensive care units. Cambridge University obstetrician Catherine Aiken is deeply concerned. We're seeing up to 200 pregnant women a week who are sick enough from COVID to need to be admitted to hospital. And we know that if a pregnant woman is admitted to hospital with COVID, then she's got a 1 in 10 chance of being sick enough to actually need an ITU bed and a 1 in 5 chance of being sick enough to need breathing support. We also know that it's very bad for babies. COVID doubles the risk of stillbirth in mums who need to be hospitalised. And one in five of the women who submitted to hospital with COVID has a premature baby, which obviously can have lifelong effects on for that child. And of course, these are, by and large, young, healthy people on the whole, aren't they, who would normally have an extremely low risk of running into trouble with coronavirus infection? Absolutely. We are seeing a really striking increase in sickness among young women with with no other real health problems whose main risk is being pregnant, particularly after 28 weeks in the third trimester of pregnancy. Do we know why pregnancy intensifies the risk for COVID, but also a raft of other infections? I'm thinking chickenpox is much worse if you catch that when you're pregnant, isn't it? And a number of other infections that seem to intensify, the flu as well, for example. That's really to do with how the body changes in pregnancy overall. And it's certainly, as you say, not unique to COVID. It's to do with the immune system changes, the hormonal changes um, and the changes in, in breathing and heart function that need to occur in order to support a baby and have a healthy pregnancy. They work extremely well when things are going well, but they can actually be counterproductive if a mum gets really ill during a pregnancy. And the women that are ending up in a parlous state with COVID... Are they vaccinated or are they unvaccinated? 
So that's really, really striking. Um, what we know between the start of this year and up to the end of September is that 99% of pregnant women who were admitted to hospital with COVID hadn't been fully vaccinated. The rates of hospitalisation among vaccinated pregnant women are exceptionally low and the latest report from the UK surveillance system shows that no vaccinated woman has needed to go to ITU for some time. And do we know what fraction of, of pregnant women are vaccinated? So that's a really interesting question because data aren't collected that way nationally. However, that's one of the things that is now being worked on at a national scale to make sure that we will have those numbers in the future. Seems something of an oversight. We didn't actually collect that data. Do you think we're, to a certain extent, reaping what we sowed here? Because when all this began, women who are pregnant were told, don't have the vaccine, you have to isolate instead, you have to shield, because we haven't got data on the safety of the vaccine. Now they're being told, go and get the vaccine. So are they sceptical with good reason? I think, you know, it's a really, really difficult thing to work against poor public health messaging that has previously been out there. As you say, the initial JCVI recommendations excluded pregnant and breastfeeding women from having the vaccine. Now, that was on the basis that they hadn't been in the trials. And, you know, I can understand why they weren't in the trials, because these trials had to be begun very quickly. And adding pregnant and breastfeeding women creates a whole other delay to beginning a trial, because safety in that sense has to be assessed as well. And so they weren't included in the trial, and so they were excluded from the initial recommendations about who should have the vaccine. The trouble was that they weren't excluded on the basis of any plausibility or reason to think that it wouldn't be okay. They were simply excluded because it hadn't been tested that way. The position now is very, very different because we have data from well over a quarter of a million women in various countries who have had the vaccine without any adverse effect on them or their baby at all. However, you're right that that initial messaging has been very, very difficult to roll back. And unfortunately, many people interpret it to mean that it wasn't safe. And that worry is very hard to shake off. So what's happening is people are essentially trading a theoretical risk that something might happen with this vaccine against a very real risk that if they catch coronavirus, they are at extreme risk of getting extremely unwell. That's right. The data are actually very much in favour of this being a very safe thing to do, whereas coronavirus is a very dangerous thing to risk during pregnancy. And I think it's important to say that there's no rational reason that we have to think that a COVID vaccination could harm babies. It's not a live vaccine. It doesn't contain any virus at all. Um, and we routinely give other non-live vaccines, such as flu and whooping cough, in pregnancy. The vaccines don't contain ingredients that are harmful to mums or babies. And we do have evidence from at least a quarter of a million pregnant women that they don't cause any fetal anomalies or problems. Given the government have made this announcement this week, there's, there's obviously a very significant concern, especially as we go into winter and we're going to probably see more instances of this. So is it a case now that we just encourage or should encourage as many women who are not vaccinated and are pregnant or are about to get pregnant to go and get vaccinated? Absolutely. We're seeing heartbreaking stories every day of otherwise well women who are extremely ill and they, are their, they and their babies are at very high risk. So do please grab a jab if you can. Catherine Aiken there. 
Along with the more common side effects of getting a Covid jab, like a sore arm or fatigue, some women have reported a change to their periods, ranging from starting early or late, bleeding more heavily, or skipping one altogether. Now, some scientists are calling for a closer look at what could be going on, including Vicky Mayle, who's from Imperial College London, and she spoke to Eva Higginbotham about how and why this might or might not be happening. So a lot of people, and back in September it was uh, just a little bit over 30,000 people, have reported that they've noticed a change to their period happening shortly after the vaccine. But the changes that people are reporting have been kind of mixed. So the most common one is your period being later than usual, and the next most common one is it being heavier than usual. But some other people have noticed other things like skipping a period altogether, or um, perhaps their period being lighter than usual. The way that this data is collected We can't actually know for sure if these are changes that are being caused by the vaccine or if they are natural changes or variations to the menstrual cycle that just happened after people have got the vaccine. And so they've sort of made a connection and made a report. But I think what is very important to say is that most people who are reporting this find that their period goes back to normal within a month or two. So this is not a long term change. And also we know from other evidence that the vaccines don't have any impact on female fertility. And so are people reporting this relating to all the different kinds of vaccines that are available in the UK, so Pfizer and AstraZeneca, for example, or is it just one vaccine type? Yeah, so it's actually all the vaccines that are available in the UK. And um, in my research, I sometimes talk to people who are being vaccinated in other countries as well. And people are also saying this in connection with other vaccines. So what that tells us is that if there is a link between being vaccinated and having a change to your period, which, to be clear, we don't know yet, uh, it tells us that it's not, for example, any particular ingredient of one kind of vaccine. That suggests to me that if there is a link, it's probably to do with the immune system being activated. And in support of this idea, we do have some evidence that um, some other vaccines, like the HPV vaccine, can be linked with changes in periods. And we do also have evidence that other things that activate your immune system, like COVID itself, for example, in about a quarter of people who have periods who get COVID, they'll find that there's a change to their period. So all of this does sort of link into the idea that there could be something going on that could be mediated by the immune system. Do you have any thoughts on what that mechanism could be? How could the immune system affect your menstrual cycle? Well, I think that there are two sort of biologically plausible ways that this could happen. The first is that we know that um, the immune system can affect reproductive hormones and indeed reproductive hormones can affect the immune system. Being vaccinated could perhaps slightly alter the levels of sex hormones and sex hormones are what's driving your period. So if they're changed, you might find your period coming perhaps a little bit later. The other possibility is that we know that the lining of the uterus is really rich in immune cells. And this is actually what I work on in my day job. And these immune cells have a role in the build-up and the breakdown of the lining of your uterus. And so we could imagine that if we kind of activate these cells, which the vaccine might do because it sort of gives your immune system a broad activatory stimulus, this could perhaps slightly change the way that they're acting to build up and break down the lining of the uterus. And that would in turn have a knock-on effect on when or perhaps how heavily you bleed. And what sort of studies do you think need to be done to figure this all out? Well, ideally, um, we would have asked people, solicited this information in the clinical trials. Because if in the clinical trials we'd said to everyone who has periods, did you notice a change to your periods? We would have the comparison between the people who got the vaccine and the people who got 
uh, the placebo or the other vaccine, depending on the kind of trial. And that would have told us for sure if there was a link here. What we're now trying to do a little bit is play catch up. So one approach to this that I'm really excited about is tapping in to the data that we can get from menstrual cycle tracking apps where people have tracked their cycles over many years so we know what's normal for them and then asking them to log when they get the vaccine and then we can see uh, a change and if there is a change how common is it and once we've got that data I think we'll be able to say with quite a lot of certainty whether this is really linked or whether it's just something that people happen to be noticing and making the connection. Is it common in clinical trials to ask people if whatever the treatment or vaccine or whatever it's for has had an effect on the menstrual cycle? As far as I know, it's never been done in vaccine trials. And that's partly, I suspect, because so many vaccine trials are done on children, um, because most vaccines, we're developing them to protect children or to protect people as soon as we can, which usually means giving the vaccine to them as children. So I think this is one of the reasons that we haven't usually thought about this before in vaccine trials. But what I hope will kind of take forward from this is that actually this is probably the sort of thing that we should solicit because it's the kind of thing that people are interested in and do worry about. Vicky Mail from Imperial College, London. From baffling British weather, sideways spines of the vertebrae coming off here, to looking at a cheetah from the inside out, games making their way to the clinic, and what to eat in your garden. Mm. The Naked Scientists In Short podcasts bring you a top-up of short, compelling science stories. Listen and download for free at nakedscientist.com/short, or subscribe to Naked Specials wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come here on the programme, if COVID escaped from a lab, as some are saying, why were researchers modifying dangerous viruses in the first place? Plus, using plant cells to produce oxygen inside a brain. But first, as we race to replace natural gas, people are increasingly looking to parts of our coastline as places where the wind blows relatively reliably, meaning that it's a great venue for wind turbines. Oddly enough, the biggest fans of these big fans turn out to be crabs. Scientists have noticed that the cables running along the seabed to transport the electricity from offshore to the mainland can affect the behaviour of local crabs, as Harry Lewis heard from Harriet Watt University's Alistair Linden. They're mesmerised, as far as we can tell at the moment, by electromagnetic field which we've simulated in the lab using magnets and using a kind of a coil which produces a magnetic field in the water. I mean, this seems like a a strange investigation off the top of my head because there aren't that many cables in the sea, are there, Alistair? There are a few at the moment, but there's likely to be a lot more soon because of the growth, particularly around the UK, of offshore power generation. So that is sort of renewable energy, either from offshore wind farms or tidal turbines and these sort of things. And they need cables And so we anticipate there's going to be uh, larger numbers of cables being deployed into the future. Okay. And how do you go about looking into this? We did two types of experiments. One was just with electromagnets under the tanks, which could be switched on or off. And then we also have, as I say, these large coils of wire, which we can produce around bigger tanks of maybe hundreds of litres, which we can put larger crabs into. So am I right in thinking that you have your tanks of crab, you've got a cable running through them, and then above it, you're taking pictures, aerial photographs or film of the crabs and seeing how they react to you turning on this magnetic field? Yeah, that's correct. 
we would normally run the magnetic field over a 24-hour period and we would then look to see what the crab's activity was over that period compared to a control where the magnets are switched off. When the magnets are switched on, the crabs move about much less than we would normally expect them to. They generally move around more at night than in the daytime anyway, but when the magnets are on, they move around a lot less at night than they normally would do. So we know that they have a behavioural response to electricity running along cable. Do we know why they're attracted to that magnetic field? We don't really know, but there's quite a lot of evidence from a variety of different animal groups that many creatures can detect the Earth's magnetic field and use it for navigational purposes. Brown crabs move over quite long distances. Certainly the male crabs we know move over tens to hundreds of kilometres in relatively short periods of time. So it seems a reasonable surmise that they perhaps use the Earth's magnetic field in these sort of movements and that the magnetic field around cables are actually detected by that mechanism and are perhaps more attractive than the the background Earth's magnetic field. Mm, That's interesting because if they're travelling so far, these brown crab, there's actually quite, I would assume, a high likelihood that they're going to come into contact with cables off offshore wind farms. That's the concern really i mean interestingly until very recently we weren't really aware that crabs moved around much and i think the assumption was that they were perhaps quite territorial and they stayed quite close to home one would anticipate it's something to do with reproduction and finding females i guess in a biological sense it probably helps to avoid inbreeding and we find that of course again a lot of animals you get dispersal of one or other sex as they mature and so it seems likely that that's what's going on here, that the males are dispersing and, and looking for females with which to mate, helping to mix the gene pool, if you like. Why is it important? What effects is it going to have out in the wild, out in the ocean? There are various possibilities. And as I say, we don't really know because we haven't looked. But we imagine that there could be issues of accumulations of crabs in the same area. It might result in unintended consequences of, for example, attracting fishing activity to the vicinity of cables, which might not be good for the cables themselves, might also result in higher catch rates of the crabs. So that could potentially be negative in the longer term as well. And the the movement of males, if it is important in terms of the reproductive biology of the crabs, may disrupt reproduction in some populations where the, the supply of male crabs is being reduced for whatever reason. Alistair Linden there, and he just published that work in the Journal of Marine Science and Engineering. That's an attractive story to report on, wasn't it? Now, biomedical researchers often want to keep animal organs alive outside of the body so they can study them. It's pretty similar to how you keep an organ transplant alive before it goes into a new patient. But these organs need oxygen to survive. And right now, the solution is to keep the organ in a bath with bubbles of oxygen around it. But a team at LMU Munich have another solution that sounds like it's come straight off the pages of a science fiction book. To keep their tadpole brains alive long enough for them to study how the nervous system works, what they've done is to inject algae cells into the blood vessels in the tadpole's brains. And that means that when they illuminate them, the algae in the light produce oxygen which is then fed directly to the surrounding brain cells, a Sally heard from Hans Strecker. The brain of all animals need an awful large amount of oxygen. Now, what we were interested in is how can we actually understand how much energy a brain needs to perform its function? 
And our idea was, why not directly use the oxygen which is produced by plants and recruit it to provide the energy for the functional brain? Of course, we cannot plant a tree into the brain. So we had to go to a smaller version, which are algae. Algae are green plants at a single cell level. So these algae produce oxygen just like a tree produces oxygen. Now, by inserting these algae into the brain, we thought we would have the capacity to directly produce the oxygen inside the brain, which can then be recruited by all the nerve cells in the brain. So the air that I breathe, obviously I need oxygen to survive. The oxygen comes from trees and algae anyway. And you're like, why don't we short circuit that? Why don't we cut out the middleman and just stick the photosynthesis right next to where the oxygen is being used? Exactly. That was the basic idea because it's faster. In our study, we injected algae into the blood vessels of a tadpole. We are working on these animals after euthanizing them and isolating the brain from these animals. And afterwards measured the uh, production of oxygen upon illumination of the tissue. You've got these tadpole brain tissues. You've got them floating around in this little bubble bath of nutrients and oxygen. And now you've inserted algae into their brains. What happened? As soon as you turn on the light and shine the light on the tissue, the algae start to produce the oxygen to such an amount that you all of a sudden can measure a considerable amount of oxygen even inside the brain. Now, when you turn off the light, it goes down to zero again because first the algae don't produce oxygen anymore and the brain is starting to consume all the oxygen that the algae have produced actually. And does that mean that If you wanted to, you could turn the light up and down on a dimmer switch and really fine-tune control how much oxygen the brain is getting. Exactly. That is what we what we, so to speak, have done because we have re- repeatedly turned the light on and off and saw that the nerve cells start firing and then they stop firing when we shut down the light and they restart the firing when we turn on the light. So we could really drive the brain activity by shining a particular amount of light. And now we know it's theoretically possible in the distant future, looking through your crystal ball. Can you imagine human treatments where we might start injecting algae into humans to increase oxygen in parts of their bodies? In theory, I could imagine something like that. But I mean, I could imagine a lot of things on on the long run. Algae have been used together with fibroblasts to heal uh, skin wounds because the oxygen which the algae produce actually help closing the wounds. So on the external surface, this is already employed. When why not employing it internally as well? Why not indeed? What an amazing series of experiments. Hans Stracker there. Much has changed for business owners, managers and staff recently. But with over 30 years experience in telecommunications, award-winning independent company Spitfire have the expertise to make sure you stay ahead and can keep on innovating. Whether it's connectivity, MPLS networks, firewalls or phone systems, Spitfire can help. To find out more, go to spitfire.co.uk. That's spitfire.co.uk. Spitfire, telecoms and IP engineering solutions for business since 1988. Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound. Perfect music for audio and video productions. 
And now we're going to talk about the broader implications of a topic that's never been far from the headlines way back since the COVID pandemic began. Well, the issue of where the pandemic began and how it began has never really gone away, but it's back centre stage because US intelligence officials are now redoubling efforts to investigate the origins of COVID-19. The orders come from President Biden. Here's the statement. It says the intelligence community is split on whether the virus came from human contact with an infected animal or emerged in a laboratory accident. You've probably heard the laboratory theory before. It's that the virus emerged from the Institute of Virology in Wuhan. This is one of China's top virus research labs. And we already know that the city became the first epicenter of the virus. But the questions are, where did it originally come from? Some believe the blab is where it started. Here's the White House. That was Ros Atkins from the BBC's Outside Source programme reporting on the announcement earlier this year that the US officials were formally investigating the possibility that COVID-19 was an escaped laboratory experiment. This week, notably, the World Health Organisation, the WHO, have also convened a new investigative team to explore further and examine this question. So you may well ask... Why would scientists want to engineer potentially lethal viruses? And why is this even allowed? But this practice is actually highly legitimate science and what's often referred to as gain-of-function research. It's where scientists try to alter the behaviour of microbes, including viruses such as influenza or coronaviruses, so that they can learn more about how diseases and pandemics evolve and new ways to treat them. So this week, we're going to explore what goes on during this sort of gain-of-function research, whether it's safe and how it's regulated and controlled. And let's begin with a moral dilemma, which is based on a real-life example of experiments that sparked a similar debate a few years back. If you were in charge of scientific funding in this circumstance, what would you do? It's 2007. A new strain of bird flu has been going around for about 10 years and it's a pretty nasty disease. It's really transmissible and deadly in birds and every so often someone working in close contact with domesticated chickens gets infected and sadly 300 people have died. But to become a human pandemic the disease needs to be able to spread from human to human and so far there isn't any evidence that that has happened. Some leading flu experts are saying that it will never adapt to humans and there is no chance of it becoming a human disease. Other experts aren't so sure. With this information, how worried would you be about this disease becoming a pandemic? Would you spend millions of pounds monitoring it? Or would you ignore it? Then a team of respected scientists offers to research how likely it is that this bird flu virus could mutate to become capable of spreading between humans. If the researchers are unable to make this virus spread between mammals in the lab, in this case ferrets, the chances of it becoming a human pandemic are slim to none. But if they can make this disease adapt to mammals, well then, you know exactly which mutations might lead to a human pandemic. You can spend money on monitoring and start developing new vaccines, potentially preventing a massive deadly pandemic. But in the process, 
the scientists will have created a new, more infectious version of an already dangerous and deadly virus. The researchers will take huge safety measures, but if the virus was somehow to escape the lab, it could cause the very pandemic you're trying to prevent. What would you have done? Would you fund the research? Quite a dilemma, isn't it? Well, with us to discuss this and flu more generally is flu expert and virologist from the University of Glasgow, and that's Ed Hutchinson. Ed, you've actually got familiarity with this story because back in 2011, you were at a conference in Malta, and I know that because I was standing there too. The two of us were talking to the scientist who did that work. Tell us a bit more about it. Sure. So as was just explained very well there was this this huge question hanging over the influenza field. We knew that influenza was very good at jumping from birds into humans because that was where previous pandemics had come from. We knew there was this really nasty strain of highly pathogenic H5N1 avian influenza, as it was called, that was quite often making people very sick. But we didn't know whether that had pandemic potential. And it wasn't at all obvious how you could, using sort of standard methods, address that question. And then at this conference, Ron Fouché, who is one of the world's most highly respected flu researchers, stood up and basically said, well, we've answered the question. We took a strain of H5N1 influenza virus. We gave it a little bit of a head start, knowing what adaptations it would normally take, getting used to growing in mammals. And in a very secure facility, we looked to see if it could become transmissible in ferrets. And it could. And instantly that answered the question. From that point on, we knew that H5N1 at least in principle, could become a pandemic virus. And it was therefore entirely legitimate to monitor H5N1 strains and to put a lot of effort into making sure that that never happened. Well, we've actually got a clip of Ron Fouché talking to us at that conference where he announced he'd be doing the work. So let's have a listen to how he described his findings. We borrowed evidence from a previous pandemic, so avian viruses changed and then caused infections in, in humans. And some of the changes that occurred in those pandemic viruses we have introduced by genetic manipulation into an H5N1 virus. And that H5N1 virus now replicates in the upper respiratory tract of mammals. Now, that virus has many of the hallmarks of a pandemic virus, but we found initially that it still was not transmitted. It was very surprising. And so what we did then is to put it into a mammal and let the virus adapt to the mammal for a few rounds and then take that virus, and then that virus will become transmissible. And so... By intelligent experiments, we were able to introduce three mutations into the virus that were necessary. And then, because we didn't know the rest of it, we let the mammals do the rest of the story, and they accumulated two or three additional mutations, and those five or six mutations are enough to make this virus transmissible. Ron Fouché speaking to me back in 2011. So, Ed, interestingly, in that instance... They effectively did it by starting with a virus that had some of the changes already in place and then they let nature take its course, evolving the way the the virus would in its natural circumstances rather than doing those changes genetically. Other scientists have done things slightly differently by taking samples that actually came out of the permafrost, for example, of people who were victims of the 1918 Spanish flu and they've recreated the 1918 Spanish flu Was that with the same aim in mind, to try to understand what it takes for a virus not just to be flu, but to be a really nasty flu? So that was a a separate study, one which took place slightly sooner, but actually raised a lot of the same concerns because you'd created something which didn't exist before, which was potentially dangerous. 
that experiment there was not answering the question, could this virus become a pandemic? Because we knew it did. The 1918 influenza, the great influenza, as it's sometimes called, is still, by most measures, even today, the worst pandemic we have a a record of. But at the time, we didn't know why that was so dangerous. So once again, working in a very, very controlled way, the researchers were able to bring back from the dead this virus and work out what had made it so dangerous so that we could protect ourselves against similar viruses in the future. You kind of hope that the first thing to be brought back from extinction would be something a bit more uh, cuddly or exciting, but actually, no, it did turn out to be this. this (laughs) One of the most deadly diseases we've ever encountered. Did it deliver in the respect that the aim was laudable, as you've said, to try to understand whether these things can become pandemics and what it takes for them to do that, or how do they cause severe disease? Are we better endowed with knowledge about flu biology and its threat that it poses to us because of these experiments? Sure. So I think the two studies are separate. But if we look at the H5N1 studies, so this question of could H5N1 influenza viruses adapt to humans, there were two types of answer you could get from that study. There's a specific answer and a general answer. The specific answers are what kind of changes would the virus need to gain in order to start becoming an efficient mammal virus rather than an efficient bird virus? And we got some answers out of that and some answers which we'd never known about before. But influenza is a complicated machine and you can fine tune it in many different ways. So although we learned some of the ways in which influenza could adapt to humans, we didn't spot all of them. And indeed, the next pandemic which came along, which was in 2009, blindsided us because it tweaked a whole set of different features of virus which hadn't cropped up in this study. So it showed us some specific features, some things to watch out for, but it didn't highlight all of the possible ways in which this very changeable virus could adapt to humans. Hmm. But in general terms, it answered the question definitively, can highly pathogenic H5N1 influenza viruses adapt to become transmissible in mammals? And the answer was very, very clearly yes, because they showed that it happened. And that's an unambiguous answer. Are there any ways that scientists could have arrived at the same point with that knowledge in hand without having to do this research, this gain-of-function research, to create potentially extremely devastatingly dangerous pathogens? It's very hard to see how that general question could have been answered in any other way. However, this study published a huge amount of focus on how these studies can be carried out and what people have put a lot of effort into since is to work out ways to do these things even more safely. So we already have very good secure labs, but for example, there are now ways to break the virus at the same time as you fix it in other ways to ensure that even if you generate something which is better in some respects, it's not going to be capable of thriving in the outside world. So some engineered safeguards. Ed, thank you very much indeed. That's Ed Hutchinson, virologist at the University of Glasgow. Now, to understand more about the risks of this type of research, it's important to understand all of the safety procedures that are in place, not only to prevent any disease from escaping a lab and infecting the wider population, but also to protect the health of the people doing the research in these labs. Clearly, some research is more risky than others. And so to find out how these risks are managed, I spoke with virologist Amanda Phelps from the UK's Defence Science and Technology Laboratory, DSTL, at Porton Down. 
So there are four categories of labs ranging from one all the way up to containment level four. Containment level one would be the sort of lab you might have in your school or college, handling agents that pose no threat or harm to people, all the way up to containment level four, where we handle the most deadly of pathogens on our planet. Levels three and four, I suppose, are the more serious ones. Certainly, I've never been in a level three or a level four lab. What sort of bugs are in level three versus level four? At containment level four, they're all viruses. These are agents that are likely to cause you severe harm or probably kill you. That's why they're classified in the highest level. Two good examples would be Ebola virus and Marburg virus. Viruses that we handle at containment level four don't have any treatments generally. Whereas for three, the likelihood of death contracting something like plague or anthrax isn't as high and we have a number of treatments available. If there's a chance it can kill you, it's in three or four. And if you can treat it, it's probably in three. If you can't treat it, it's probably in four. That's a really good summary. Yes, yes. What's it like to say work in a category three lab when you're working with viruses like avian flu and the current coronavirus okay so it's nothing like you would probably see in any of the movies is a good place to start um, only the people who are qualified and experienced at working with these particular agents are allowed to go into these particular labs we can control the air flows and for us that means negative pressure so the air is always rushing in and it doesn't rush out We wear our normal clothes, go on in, put your lab coat on. I put a pair of gloves on and then you can begin work. And so how do you make sure that you don't accidentally infect yourself? The glove boxes that we work in, essentially a large box with two large gloves attached to it at the front. And we sit at those, we have air flows again at negative pressure. So air is always rushing in and we only ever handle the bugs in these glove boxes so the bugs and us we're never actually in the same place at the same time there's always always a physical barrier and most of the time it's not just one barrier it's two or three. So you're one of the rare breed of researchers that actually works in a category four lab so what's that like to work in how is it different from category three? We need to completely change out of our everyday clothes and change into what we call scrubs. And we have to put on a special pair of shoes or a dedicated pair of shoes to go into the lab. And once in the lab itself, we have lots of connected glove boxes all linked together so that all of the work that we need to do is entirely contained within the corridor or link of glove boxes. Once we've finished our work for the day, we then need to remove the scrubs and the dedicated shoes and have a shower, a full shower with hair wash and then come out and we can get back into our everyday street clothes. And of course, the majority of the time, if any accidents were to occur, it would be just that an accident. But what's to stop someone who's seen a few too many science fiction movies from stealing one of these nasty viruses or bacteria from one of the labs? We have very strict auditable records of the materials that we hold. So anytime we access, let's say, anthrax as an example, if we were to access some stocks for some work, then we would need to make a record of what we have accessed, when, how much and what we used it for. So there are very, very strict controls. 
the people element is always an interesting factor. But again, I come back to the training where we bring people in at the lower levels, we train, we work alongside them. And it's only when we recognise they have the right skill sets and the right sort of aptitude for working in the higher containment levels, it, only then will they progress. Amanda Phelps there from the Defence Science and Technology Laboratory. Now this week, we're looking at some of the ethical quandaries posed by the riskiest biological research. We've just heard about the equipment and procedures that researchers in high security labs use to protect themselves and the wider public. But, of course, anywhere there are humans, there's the possibility of human error, and laboratories are no exception. Alison Young is an investigative reporter and a professor of journalism at the University of Missouri. She specialises in mistakes and errors in biosafety. Sally asked her, what can go wrong in these high security labs? There are a variety of things that can go wrong and that have gone wrong. I have spent most of the last more than 10 years reporting on accidents that have occurred at some of the world's most elite labs, places like the National Institutes of Health. Obviously, viruses and bacteria don't just walk out on their own. The ways that they can potentially get out usually has to do with human error or riding out on human beings. We had a situation at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention where a scientist at the CDC in 2014 was preparing a specimen of what was a benign strain of avian influenza to send for research at another government lab. The problem was is that they had used some bad safety practices and prepared the specimen at the same time. They were also preparing specimens with a very deadly strain of avian influenza. So they send off this specimen to this other lab, and the scientists who are working with it didn't realize that they were working with this deadly strain of influenza until the chickens in their research study all unexpectedly died. In that case, we got lucky. Those researchers just happened to, as a matter of course, be working with a higher level of protection, but they were not required to for the kind of experiment that they were doing. Is it possible to do this research in a way that is 100% safe? You know, everything is subject to human error. These labs are designed with redundant safety systems. But at the end of the day, it's human beings that are operating within them. In the United States, there are only a subset of laboratories that come under actual true regulation. Every year, just in that subset of labs, there are a hundred serious incidents every single year where a person working in a lab has been exposed to some sort of a select agent pathogen. So that doesn't mean that there are 100 incidents where the virus or bacteria has escaped. It's where there is a chance that the researcher has been infected. Exactly. I mean, the good news in all of this is the number of those incidents where the person who is working with the pathogen actually becomes infected is relatively low. And even lower still are the number of times where a laboratory accident has resulted in infections out in the wider community. But those kinds of incidents have happened. Can you give us an example? Sure. I mean, there are, there are three really prominent examples of this. In the UK, in Peerbright in 2007, 
at a large animal research and vaccine manufacturing facility, they had what was literally a lab leak where they were working with foot and mouth disease virus to make vaccines. And they had leaky drainage pipes that had corroded and not been maintained. And ultimately, there were herds of cattle that were on nearby farms that became infected. And there were 600 cattle that needed to be culled in that case. Animal and human pathogens and diseases have their different categorizations, but foot and mouth is at the top of the animal diseases. It only is worked on in the most secure facilities, and this is happening in the UK, and yet somehow it's still managed to escape. It really is. I mean, one of the ones that is held out there as being an example of what can happen even when you know you are working with one of the most dangerous pathogens out there. We also had, you know, obviously the pandemic has everyone thinking about SARS coronaviruses. And when the first SARS virus emerged, after that epidemic was contained in the summer of 2003, there was a series of lab accidents where workers who were unaware that they'd become exposed in their laboratories went out and were out and about in public until they developed symptoms. So they didn't even know a lab accident had occurred until after they became ill. And then lastly, we'll also say that, you know, when we think about sort of the larger consequences of a lab accident on the world, there was sort of a global epidemic that is believed to have involved a non-natural occurrence of a virus. And so this is in 1977, the reemergence of an H1N1 influenza virus This was a strain that when scientists studied it, looked like it had been frozen in time from 1950, the last time that it had been seen. And it's widely viewed that it was either some form of a laboratory accident or some sort of a vaccine trial that had a mishap. So these kinds of things where the pathogen gets out and affects the wider community are relatively rare but they have happened. And the concern that is being expressed when it comes to gain-of-function research by scientists and, and some members of the public is that you know, they may be rare, but there is the potential for devastating consequences. If human error is inevitable, and there is always going to be the chance, however small, that there could be an accident, in your view, having reported on this for the last few decades... Do you think that all of this research should just be stopped? Is it just too hot to handle, too risky to do anything with? As a journalist, it's not my place to say either way. But that is part of the important debate that is playing out right now. There are those who believe that this research is vitally important to developing various treatments and understanding where the next pandemic may come from. But there are those who believe that the risks are not worth whatever the benefits are. And I think that it's an important debate that all of us need to be paying attention to. And who does get to decide on whether the risks of this research outweigh the benefits? That is an outstanding question. And that's one of the things that's out there for debate. When it comes to very risky research, there are some mechanisms in place for some layers of approval But questions have been raised in the United States about whether those structures are adequate to ensure sufficient oversight. 
Indeed. Alison Young there from the University of Missouri. Now, as we just heard from Alison, many people have raised concerns about how this type of high-risk research is actually regulated and controlled. Well, to talk about that with us now is Philip Palentzos, and she's an expert on science and international security. She's at King's College London. Philippa, what is the framework for sort of regulation of doing this sort of work, both in the UK but also internationally? Well, in the UK, we've got pretty good legislation around safety aspects of working with dangerous pathogens. So we everything's covered under the Health and Safety at Work Act, regulated by the Health and Safety Executive. But that is just looking at safety aspects. It's not looking at ethical or social questions around whether or not this kind of research should go ahead. We've got some security aspects regulated, but not all security aspects regulated. So we've got some kind of framework, and it's a statutory framework. In the United States, it's not in law. There isn't a legal basis for the framework. It's guidance, and it's based on whether or not you are in receipt of federal funding. So if you're funded, you're obliged to follow those guidelines. But if you're doing your research on the basis of private money, you don't need to follow necessarily those guidelines, although most, for example, companies will do that because that is seen as the kind of the standard to which uh, Mm. to follow. And is there a sort of minimum level that countries should comply with or, or is it very much hit and miss? Could, could it be that if your country is a bit more lax or lets a bit more go through, you're a bit more relaxed about what you're willing to let people do? Are you likely to become a magnet for people coming to do higher risk type studies that, that are perfectly legitimate, but they want to do them with the least friction so they'll come to you? Oh, yeah. Science, you know, science tourism or research tourism. I mean, there is that possibility or just subcontracting some pieces of work. Although, again, if that work is funded by someone in the UK or someone in the States, you know, you have to adhere to that funder's set of regulations. But we do know that internationally there aren't any set standards for this. There is, of course, guidance from the WHO, for instance, on biosafety. But again, That only covers safety aspects. It doesn't cover, for instance, whether or not gain-of-function research should be going ahead. And implementation of these is inconsistent across different countries. Mm. Who actually does get to be judge and jury on that? Who decides what should or shouldn't be done? We've heard at the beginning of the programme from Ed Hutchinson some very important, very useful examples of how this has been done for flu. It was dangerous research, but it was safely concluded and has borne fruit. Who would have actually had oversight and decided, yes, this is legitimate, yes, we're going to fund this, and then applying that to what may or may not have gone on in Wuhan at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, where they were working on coronaviruses and potentially adapting them? We know that grants were submitted asking for funding to make changes to these coronaviruses for perfectly legitimate reasons. But who would have actually decided whether or not that can go ahead? Well, it would have been the funder in that case. So if a Department of Defense in the United States, if they wanted to go ahead and fund that, that would be okay. There is no international oversight body that says, no, that can't be done. Or we're the kind of world lab police and we're going to go in and check. So nobody internationally would, would say no. So it's really up to the funder and the particular local or national regulatory framework, whether that can go ahead. And of course, with that work, we... We know that the Department of Defense in the United States said, no, we're actually not going to fund this because we think it's too risky. 
we don't know if it was funded by somebody else or or whether it still went ahead. Yes, indeed, because you've got the you've got the idea, you've written the application, you've thought about how to do the project. If someone says no, you just take the project somewhere else. Quite possibly, and often when you do write uh, research proposals, you need to do some of that research in advance in order to make sure that you can confidently say that this is a viable research project. So it is also possible that some of that research was already done in advance of the proposal being submitted. We heard from Alison Young about some examples of things that have gone wrong. When things are discovered to have gone wrong, how do they get investigated? And then how is change and learning brought in to make sure that the same mistakes don't happen twice? Is there anything that's in place to make sure that we we do learn from our mistakes? Well, not enough, I would say. And again, this differs from place to place, right? So in the UK, if there are big accidents, you know, the foot and mouth disease outbreak that Alison was referring to at Purbright, there was a big inquiry and there were hundreds of pages written up so that we would learn from that incident. Uh, smaller incidents that are less well known, it's harder to learn from them. Mm. Also, it's we don't have these kind of accident registries that we could go into necessarily. A lot of local accidents, most local accidents are small, of course, and so they don't get reported. There's obviously a gap there. Philippa, thank you very much for filling us in. That's Philippa Lentzos from King's College London. Sally. So what have we learned? Well, scientists do study dangerous diseases in the lab, and sometimes the best way to study them is to make them more dangerous. Now, this kind of research is only done under the strictest safety measures, but it's impossible to prevent human error and mistakes do occur. So given that enhanced diseases can escape labs, have escaped labs, many people are calling for more regulation. Should we, the public, be told more about this research? Should we get a say in what's allowed? What would that even look like? This certainly isn't going to be the end of the discussion. And let's change tack and finish the programme as we are wont to do with our question of the week. And Eva Higginbotham's been answering this colourful inquiry from Ellie. My name's Ellie and I'm a teacher from Manchester and we've been studying genetics and one of my students asked me a question that I couldn't answer. Hi Dr Chris, I'm a year nine student from Manchester and I have got one blue eye and brown eye and I have a question for you. When I have kids, are they going to have a blue eye and a brown eye like me? Now, I am fully invested in finding out the answer to this question because I also have eyes which are different colours. The iris of my left eye is light green, whereas my right eye is split down the middle, half green and half brown. And when I asked my science teacher about the genetics of this when I was in year seven, she called me a mutant. So I'm glad your teacher, Ellie, is more supportive of this excellent query. I went ahead and put the question to eye colour expert David Mackey at the University of Western Australia. Iris colour and similarly hair and skin colour is mainly influenced by the production of pigment, which is predominantly melanin. A brown coloured iris has lots of melanin, while a blue coloured iris has little melanin. The eye appears blue for the same reason the sky appears blue, from the scattering of light. In the case of an eye, light is scattered by the clear collagen fibres in the front part of the iris. Similarly, there's no green pigment for green eyes. Instead, the eye appears green due to a combination of minimal melanin and light scattering. So, that's why eyes appear different colours. But what determines what colour eyes each of us has? 
We used to think the genetics of eye colour were quite straightforward, with brown being dominant. We now know that the genetics of eye colour are quite complex, with dozens of genes and environmental factors also playing a role. Newborn babies often have lighter coloured eyes, and the pigment increases over the first few years of life. Having one eye of different colours is known as heterochromia, and this is usually due to environmental factors. An eye injury can affect eye colour, with David Bowie being a famous example. So if heterochromia is often caused by environmental factors, what does that mean for the children of people with heterochromia? It is unlikely that your children will have eyes of different colours. However, if you are a dog, there is a high chance of your offspring having heterochromia. In dogs and some other animals, just as their fur can have patchy areas of pigment, they can have one pigmented and one less pigmented iris. This is particularly noted in Arctic Huskies. Some genes associated with this have been identified. So there you go. It seems that it is unlikely that your children, or my children, will also have beautiful, differently coloured eyes. We're the lucky ones. We'll just have to get them a husky instead. Next week, we're answering this question from Rob. Is dark matter in large lumps or like grains of sand? I can't begin to even imagine what a sandcastle made out of dark matter might look like. But if you know the answer, come and tell us. You can join the debate on our forum, nakedscientists.com forward slash forum, or email chris at thenakedscientists.com. You can also use that address to send us any new questions you've been pondering. And you can probably appreciate the gravity of that latter question. That's it for this week. Thanks very much to Sally who put the programme together. And join us next time when we're going to be answering the science questions you've been sending in. We'll be comparing Martian landing sites to their respective locations on Earth. And we're going to be flying high before we get to the bottom of winter bird migrations. The Naked Scientist comes to you from the University of Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education. It's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith, and from all of us here at The Naked Scientist, thanks for listening, and until next time, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.